Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If you need recommendations for innovative family counseling or coupon codes for your local Horns department store, this is a podcast for you. Today, we're going to be talking about Episode 6, Cooper's Dreams. You pause so long every time I, I never I say well, it. Well, because I always think there's going to be bumper music, and there never is. So, uh, Episode 6, Episode 5, Cooper's Dreams, is directed by Leslie Linka Gladder and written by Mark Frost. It's his first solo credit as a writer on the show, and it is uh, Leslie Linka Gladder's first work on the show. I believe she goes on to do some episodes later on in season two. Leslie Linkladder's name is significant because it sounds a lot like Linkladder, so it makes me wonder if she's married to uh, Richard. I don't um, know who that person is. So. Me neither, but uh, I think she did good work. No, I mean the other one you said. Richard Linkladder? Yeah. Oh boy, how are we dating? So this episode opens with those, um, those more sepia-toned images from the credits that we mentioned last episode. Why is it only um, Catherine and Josie who get their characters' names in the credits? This has never made sense to me. I don't know. It, you know, it, it has to do with how, like, how credits are assigned. Yeah, but like, nobody, else is, nobody else gets that. Like, it doesn't say like Kyle MacLachlan as Dale Cooper. Yeah, but that's because he's a main character. But I think it's just, well, I know it's because Piper Laurie at least has cachet. And she's like a classic actress. I don't know why Josie gets it, but uh, the opening shot is of sort of a blood moon. It's just basically got the same sepia-toned uh, filter over it coming into focus, and poor Coop is being kept awake by a bunch of Icelanders, Icelandic peoples. I don't know yeah. what the nomenclature so, is, but they're singing and dancing super in loudly Icelandic. in Icelandic on his floor at the Great Northern. So he's awake uh, at like four in the morning telling Diane to forward him a set of earplugs. And the next morning, because of this, he is not pretty well rested. He goes down to get some coffee. This is his like most relatable scene for me, though. <laughs> Just that I also make that noise after my first sip of coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Can confirm. He is not in a good mood and he tells Audrey as much when she comes up to him. He's not really putting up with her Audrey-ness. Yeah. You know, up, and, up until this point, he's been kind of, you know, engaging in her banter. And also, you know, talking to her like a person. But like when she asks like, oh, maybe I could like, maybe I could come with you. He very much like dismisses her as a high schooler. Like, you know, and asks her how old she is. Then he asks her how old she is. And then he's not so dismissive. This is this was yeah because it turns out she's eighteen. Yeah. Is she though? Is she lying? I don't know. About I this? think I I can't tell. I can't tell if we're supposed to read her as lying. But yeah, she says she says she's eighteen. For context, he doesn't just like straight up ask her how old she is. It's kind of relevant to the conversation. I mean, it's not really, but he says because his line is Wednesdays were traditionally a school day when I was your age, and she says I can't believe you are ever my age, which mm-hmm. kind of sounds like an insult. A little bit, like. Really, I I read it as like, I read it as just flirtatious. It, yeah, you're right. I don't it know. Is. It's kind of offensive to say to somebody like, in their 
30s, like, God, I can't believe you were ever 18. It's sort of the thing, like, a young kid would say to, like, an old grandma. But so then, so then he asks her how old she is, and she says 18. And I didn't realize, like, how immediately he stops being quite so um, snippy with her. And he's like, see you later, Audrey. And I'm just like, oh, okay, that's, that's not great. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd beat. Speaking of odd beats, as Coop exits, we see Jerry, who has been apparently been partying with the Icelanders, Icelandic peoples. He, so th- th- this might explain, perhaps, why the party was so raucous and so late into the evening. But he stumbles into... Uh, well, and they got in at, like, three, right? Didn't oh, okay. Wasn't... And he stumbles into Ben's office and explains... Uh, he, loves, he loves the Norwegian people, especially one, Heppa, uh, mm-hmm. a woman he's met and they're sort of talking about this ghostwood estates project they're trying to push through these icelanders are wild about it before leland As comes jerry in jerry is still like obviously drunk <laughs> oh yeah jerry hands hands ben like a huge lego lamb and says like it's some prime rotisserie opportunity or something, something rotisserie something like heaven or rotisserie heaven like that. that's what it was uh but, but leland stumbles in and Maybe his pajamas? I think it was just, like, clothes, but also a house coat bathrobe thing. Okay, okay, that's what it was. But, yeah, he stumbles in looking very disheveled, big five o'clock shadow, and basically asking Leland if there's... Not Leland, whoops. Ben and Jerry about if there's uh, if there's work to be done because he wants something to basically occupy his brain. And Ben says, no, go home, uh, you need a rest. Leland doesn't really take it that well. Well, and I mean, like, I kind of get it, right, that, like, Leland would be looking for some kind of normalcy and, like, return to his routine, that, like, he would kind of need that, but I also... Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm not frequently sympathetic to Ben Horn's position, but I do understand why he doesn't want this, like, still clearly distraught... Yeah. ...losing it person working for him. Well, especially, <laughs> especially in the middle of him trying to salvage uh, a deal that was sort of put off by by laura's death yeah um, no i think ben's character is so funny because he's such a slime ball and he's so gross and you know evil basically in the first two seasons but he's still like he's a businessman who's surrounded by either like incompetent or crazy or equally scheming people and he's just like sort of trying to keep his small town like crime empire from colliding with everyone else's small town crime empire it's just like cooper goes to meet truman at jacques apartment uh doc hayward is there for some reason we were talking about this when we watched it i'm so confused like one why two he can't well he doesn't do laura's autopsy but it's implied that he would have had she not been somebody that he knew and we talked about this like is he yeah. the coroner is he the medical examiner is he the only, like, doctor OBGYN, in town? Yeah. yeah, like, what is his role? So I guess now and add, like, forensics guy to this list because, like, he doesn't really do anything. I really don't understand why he's there. This is one of the few scenes, I think, where you get, you see other policemen that are not among the principal cast just sort of in the background doing stuff. And there's clearly people, like, collecting forensic evidence. So I don't know. Maybe he's just bored. I mean, it could be that just like, hey, hey guys, heard you, uh, heard you busted that uh, Renault guy's apartment. <laughs> Can I come by and hang Can out? Can I go? Um, well, because that's the other 
thing that like if anyone got all this lasagna to make later this diet lasagna yeah. yeah if anyone not on the police force was gonna be there you would think it would be ed because he's one of the bookhouse boys but like doc hayward isn't one of the bookhouse boys so far as we know i was gonna say unless he is which i think would be awesome <laughs> i mean head cannon doc hayward's uh, maybe the head of the bookhouse boys the the original uh, original bookhouse boy yeah <laughs> the original bookhouse boy doc hayward so cute this really is a doc hayward fan cast i was gonna say it really is but so what they discover is that the blood on leo's shirt was not laura's but as coop sort of seems to pull out of thin air and then doc hayward confirms on the phone it was in fact jock's blood yeah and then they pull a copy of flesh world magazine it seemed fully from the ether I have no idea where that came from. It was just on the ceiling. You know how, think about the ceilings in the dorms, like the freshman dorms. Okay. That's what I'm imagining that it was, that it's one of those ones where you can kind of lift the panels and stick stuff up in there. That was my assumption, but they did not. They did not make they that didn't clear. cue no. us that visually whatsoever. Yeah, and like, without the context of having done that with my dorm ceiling i would not have but yeah and then this whole bit was a little unclear to me but you can explain maybe what's going on but they get they find mail from a p.o box so i think what happens is that so they what they seem to be saying is they're kind of explaining how the flesh world like magazine works which is that flesh world yeah so people place personal ads but they don't post they don't like place their personal information, their own contact information isn't in there. It's entirely anonymous. Oh, so and like it's a PO box. Flesh World. So Flesh World has their address. So they post an ad. People respond to the ad by mailing their stuff to Flesh World, and then Flesh World sends it to oh. the person's address. So I think what they figure out is that there are like two. There are two ads where the mail is going to the same address. Rana and Lo- Rana Laura. and Laura's ad are both going to Jacques' P.O. box. Right, so okay. So basically, Jacques Renault was, like, pimping them out. Right, okay. And that's, so the photo that they get of a guy in lingerie with a beard, and they make, like, a joke about, like, oh, the beard kind of ruins the lingerie. So that's someone trying to... Yeah. Hook up with Laura and Ronette then. Or okay. Leo. Or, or Leo, I guess. You're right. You're, you're yeah. right. Because um, he, he hasn't found that at this point, has not found the Laura ad yet. But he does find the Leo ad. Yeah, which we also talked about this in the first episode, where you found that ad that you thought was fake. but Canon confirmed. Leo is a bisexual swinger. It's a weird yeah. choice. Oh, it's, I, I think it's great. It's a whole other really obscure dimension to his character that you only yeah. get if you yeah pause on those two frames. I'm super amused that uh that they actually did end up explaining exactly how Flesh World worked. So yeah, and nice. and solving basically answering all of our questions. Yeah, well I just I like how they're tying together. There's more mystery elements sort of going on in this. There's the overarching sort of procedural nature. That sounds like an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. They do explain the sort of, I guess, real world side to this crime and to Laura's yeah. murder. Like they do kind of go through all of what was happening. Which has honestly been always been the part that I, by the time you roll around to like season two, I've always forgotten the actual details of how the, what the actual crime, how it goes down and the actors in it. So cool, cool. 
we get to uh, get around to Bobby and Shelly. They're sort of, they're, they're having their affair. They're very casual, and they're doing a little bit of a role play. These scenes make me so anxious. <laughs> why? You said this when we were watching, but why anxious? So I don't ever quite remember when Leo shows up. Whether or not they get caught. I'm just very on edge because I don't really know what's going mm. to happen. Okay. And I get like like secondhand anxiety from the situations. Yeah, no, it's like I'm physically uncomfortable during all of these scenes. It's, I, I feel like Dana Ashbrook's uh, charisma here sort of negates that a little bit for me, but they're, uh, they're doing a role play where he's... He's got her gun, and he's sort of saying, "What if, what if Leo was here now? I would, uh, I would tell him to cook, cook for both of us." Because I guess Leo says he doesn't like Shelley's cooking. But then there's sort of a, I think it's the sound of a car door closing, and then a ring, a ring at the at the door, and they like they jump at the sound of the car door while Bobby's like being very sort of cocky, talking to non-existent Leo. I think that's pretty funny. No one would say it's subtle, but. Yeah, the other thing that I, I think um, makes me nervous about these scenes is that I know that, like, when... Spoilers. I know that when Shelly does try to use the gun, it doesn't end super well for her. And so their kind of, like, brashness in, like, Shelly's got a gun, so she's going to be fine. I'm just like, no, though. <laughs> I mean, she is fine, eventually. Spoilers. Is she, though? I mean... When all set, when all said and done, at the end of the return, we'll get there. So uh, the ring of the door, though, is just it's just Andy. He's looking for Leo, and Shelley sort of runs a bit of uh, interference for Bobby, basically, and keeps keeps them on the trail of Jacques Renault. And yeah, kind of makes up a a situation where she heard Leo arguing with yeah with Jacques, Jacques about Laura, um, and then uh, and then yeah, Leo calls on the phone. And Shelly picks up and sort of runs the same kind of interference. I don't know, zooms in on them, like, holding the gun. It's a big Chekhov, Chekhov's gun. Shelly's gun. Shelly's gun. The new, the new Chekhov's gun. Yeah. Well, the new Chekhov's gun is Chekhov's tower from the M. Night Shyamalan movie Glass, which, here's my review of that movie. Very, very terrible and highly enjoyable. But that's a subversion of Chekhov's gun where... They show you this big tower where the fight scene's going to happen at the end, but then it doesn't happen because they don't have the budget for it. <laughs> spoilers, I guess. Yeah, spoilers for class. So you get a scene of Norba and Ed. They're both away. Ed, Ed, Nadine is at the patent office for the noiseless drape runners. Hank, I guess, is going to be out in a few hours. So they meet up to basically break things off. It's it's sort of an I don't know an admission from both Norma and Ed that they're not actually going to leave their respective spouses. Yeah, it's a really good scene. It is a really good scene. It's, it's got that one mel- of the few oh. like I think you were about to say melodramatic. No, I think it's it's melodramatic and sincere, and it gets away with the melodrama because they're two adults who are like talking about real issues in their life and a real sense of like man, we want better things, but we're kind of stuck with this. So I think the yeah. the realness of and the frankness that they're sort of talking about it with, they get away with melodrama. I really like this scene. Quite good. Yeah. Audrey meets with Emery Battis, who is the manager at Horn's department store, to get the job that she was talking to Ben about in the last episode. And while Emery Battis wants her to start in the wrapping department she is set 
on the perfume counter in order to investigate Laura's involvement there further. And so she sort of blackmails him. She says that if he doesn't give her the job at the perfume counter, she's going to rip her dress and scream and then tell Benny made a pass at her. Yeah. So so she's going to be on on paper is going to be working in the wrapping department, but in reality will be working the perfume counter. And this was a weird, I don't know, this was a weird scene to me because you would think that, right, because Emery Battis is the guy, like he, obviously, I won't spoil it, but like, obviously we know why he doesn't want Audrey working at the perfume counter, right? And so you would think that her insistence on working at the perfume counter would kind of clue him into the fact that she knows something's up with the perfume counter. Yeah, but he's into it. No, I'm serious. There's like, she's got a, the, the line where she's like, he says, yes, he agrees or whatever. And she's like, yes, what? And he's like, yes, Miss Horn. I don't know. It's very like sort of dominatrix. Like, yeah. Also too, I think kind of, it highlights the fact that like Ben, you know, like Ben Horn does not particularly like his daughter. Um, He doesn't really like try to, like, he doesn't really let her get away with stuff but everyone that works for him does like lets her get away with whatever because like at the end of the day she is still like the boss's daughter and so yeah it's her using the same sort of slimy underhanded techniques that she's picked up from her dad too it's hotter when audrey does it though yeah for sure then we see uh yeah james and donna uh meeting in like a gazebo yeah for basically james to give us an exposition dump about his family and why we haven't seen them in the show yet yeah his dad ran off his mom's an alcoholic who shacks up with men that's a weird thing of like i don't i don't know it's kind of hard to be judgmental of like a single middle-aged woman who wants to you know like well was it sleep around was the implication that she's getting paid for it yeah, well, I was trying to I was trying to skirt around that, but yes, I I think that is sort of the implication. Uh, I think it's fine to have this angle to his character. It comes far Out too of late, nowhere. yeah, and... into the series. And I think it kind of it does reveal a bit of a problem that I think you can definitely pick up on in the return. Although I think it's almost intentional. There is like a lot of these people are very much. We maybe even talked about this. They're plot vessels, and mm-hmm. this is sort of backfill for the fact that James is. Like, James, James is kind of the, the pretty face for Donna to have. His character doesn't really do anything. He's kind of a kind of a pointless character, except for, yeah, what he kind of is a catalyst for in the plot. Well, also, his forehead's so big, they often had to use it to reflect some of the lighting <laughs> in the... Uh, I'm so sorry to the actor. Is it what? James Marshall? It's also fall. It's very clearly shot in the fall. Whoops. The next shot is really funny because it just focuses on a plate of donuts uh, being passed <laughs> like around. Being passed around. Yeah, until yeah. it reaches Cooper. That's really that's really funny. It's just a cute. Again, I'm a, I'm a sucker for just any uh, any kind of camera trick that's just offbeat. So in Jacques Renault's apartment, uh, Coop discovers some photos. I don't know why Jacques has like these photos taped to the inside of his kitchen cabinet. Oh, art. Uh, everyone wants to see some nice murder rape lodges when they go to get their paprika uh (laughs) but so coop sees these photos and one of them is a cabin with red drapes and he's then able to find an ad in flesh world that he believes laura placed because although the figure's face is obscured 
he can see the same red drapes as in the cabin, and they're also the same ones that he saw in his dream. Yeah, um, and they're the same ones as in Run at Pulaski's ad, I think, too. Okay, okay. Hawk says that Jacques has a place up in by the state line, so they, the, the boys set out to find uh, said cabin. Maddie goes to meet up with James at uh, the double R and is introduced to Donna. How have they not met? That's my question. Well, I mean, it was just last episode, right, that she met James? Or was it the one before? Yeah, but I mean, my question is, like, Maddie is staying at the Palmer house. Like, how has... We've also seen Donna there. Oh, that's true. Did Maddie miss the funeral? Did she get there after it? Wouldn't she have seen Donna at the funeral? A good way to find an answer to this question would be to listen back to our episodes about said TV show. Yes, but I don't remember off the top of my head. So anyway, we I'm will, surprised We will live with this enigma. I'm surprised that they haven't met prior to this, but I guess they haven't. Yeah, and they basically just tell Maddie that, uh, you know, they're on their quest to save Laura's memory, whatever. They're, they're investigating. Uh, you know, I, it's so hard for me to... They piss me off, honestly. They're really starting to piss me off. They, at the gazebo, they're talking, oh, we got to save Laura, her ghost. I mean, come on, people. I, I do feel like they actually do sort of have a point in that scene where James says, like, if we don't figure this out, it's going to, like, be this presence in our relationship for the rest of our lives and it's going to fuck up the whole thing, which is fair. But I feel like the thing that you need to do to make sure that this does not, you know, permanently damage your relationship is not solving her murder it's processing your trauma yeah which you are both clearly not doing and like we've got a counselor for you though it's interesting though because i definitely did they did not piss me off this much when i first watched it but when i first watched it i was 16 yeah and so even though i may, might have recognized the melodrama of it i on a certain level was like i mean yeah like these are these are dramatic circumstances this is a reasonable reaction and now i'm just like oh boy these children need therapy yeah well i guess part of it is just cuz it comes off as like selfish and we mentioned that before which you know maybe is uh, maybe is accurate realistic to the the sort of trauma and yeah, that no, particular I mean, I think- time in their you know emotional development but they're kind of obnoxious yeah i mean i think one thing that this show does really well is that people do have very realistic responses to grief in that they're weird right Mm. it's not everybody reacts kind of differently and everybody reacts in ways that are not just like being sad Mm -hmm. a lot of dancing for example yeah well so exactly like from the palmers to I, i think that that it does do a good job of of showing the like the weird and uncomfortable and strange ways that people are processing this you know really intense event so well they asked they asked Maddie to check Laura's room for anything she may have hidden there when they get up to leave there's sort of a dramatic reveal that Hank was seated behind them Norma and Shelley who have obviously just gone on their spa day that they talked about the last episode walk in i think that's a good bit of continuity i guess i guess i sort of coming to this knowing yeah actually this isn't just like all david lynch and mark frost's pet project like a lot of the early twin peaks was just sort of like different directors i'm always inclined now to think like there won't be this kind of continuity between episodes but Mm -hmm. then again 
people still know how to like make a TV show. So yeah, maybe I'm maybe yeah. I'm holding to I'm holding a weird little grudge there. But yeah, they're they're coming back from their spa day, and Hank is sort of he's menacing when he's first introduced in the shop, but then when he's confronted with Norma, he's uh, sort of deferential and says he's ready to work and earn back her trust. Yeah, which okay, so this is the thing that I again don't understand about why he's in jail. Because he's acting here with Norma like he... I'm not saying that he didn't do something wrong. Obviously he did, but like that he did something... Hashtag free Hank Jennings. Hashtag Hank Jennings did nothing wrong. Because the circumstances of like his... The, the whole manslaughter thing are not particularly clear. I don't know, I just... I, I Their relationship confuses me and I don't understand. I bet you like three episodes later, the show will explain exactly all of our questions with this. Uh. Probably. That seems to be a trend, but yeah. We have an invitation to listen. Uh, Shelly watches Invitation to Love on the diner TV as a rough biker type beats up Chet in front of their dad, whose name I think is Jared. The old guy? Yeah. Yeah. It's unclear why. Yeah. I, I, look, you know what? Yeah, we're not we're not paid to follow this plot. We're just paid to convey it to you. Uh, yeah, we don't really get that plot continuity. But it's obviously just supposed to be, I mean, it's a rough biker type showing up to cause trouble. It's Hank Jennings. I mean, if, you know. Beat you over the head with it, why don't you? Well, they do. They do. Yeah. Or the biker hits Maybe, Yeah, Chet. they beat Chet with it. But no, I think it is it, it is kind of um, a tone, like a tone-setting thing. And I like that there isn't, that it is kind of out of context. Because mm-hmm. I think, we'll get into this later, but a lot of this episode is really ominous. And I think a lot of that ominousness, hmm. Ominosity. A lot of that comes from this sort of lack of context that we... Not lack of context, but a lot of things are just sort of, yeah, they're ominous, and we don't really know what's going on, and we don't really know why. But there sure are a lot of crows. I don't know. I think I think this starts to set that tone. Yeah. Uh, Major Major Briggs and Betty Briggs take Bobby is Briggs. Is that her name? It is. It is. I looked it up. Huh. I was prepared because last time when I was talking about Ben Horn's wife, I couldn't remember her name. But yeah, Major and Betty Briggs take Bobby for family counseling with Dr. Jacoby. It makes sense that... Bobby would need counseling. I <laughs> the issues that Major Briggs raises, like he's he's distant and closed off, and like his attendance at school has become erratic, and he's been drinking. And it's like, yeah, dude, his girlfriend was brutally murdered. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> like obviously, Makes yeah, sense. he does need counseling, but like, are you surprised by these behaviors? Because that's kind of how it's. He's like, I don't, you know, it's sort of played as a like. We don't know why he's doing this, like, teenage rebellion thing. And it's like, um, he's maybe acting out because his girlfriend was brutally murdered. Yeah, like five days ago. Jacoby wants to speak with Bobby privately. And he does what I've described in the notes as sort of a double psychoanalysis of Bobby and Laura. This scene is so weird. Why are people so... Break Bobby down into... I don't know why people do this to Bobby. This is kind of along the same lines as what Coop does to him in the interrogation mm-hmm. scene, where he's like, you didn't love her anyway. And then Jacoby's just like, what happened the first time you made love? Did you cry? Did she laugh at you? And it's like, leave him alone. And then, yeah, did Laura, did Laura manipulate you? Did Laura, like, corrupt you and make you do bad things? And Bobby's, like, crying. Uh, which, I, so, are we supposed to read this as Bobby hamming it up for Jacoby? Or is this genuine? Because... Everything about the scene plays it genuine, but it's so hammy. I think maybe it's both. I think maybe, like, 
he is in that emotional state, but he's defensively hamming it up as a response to, like, when he starts to break down, he starts to... When he starts to break down, it's very hammy, so whatever. But previously, when he's sort of sitting around with his parents, uh, oh, that's so good. not opening up to Dr. Jacoby, he's hilarious. I mean, like, I we've said it a bunch, but I'm super surprised that I've come around, like... And I, I like the... Um... Uh, I like the line where he asks Jacoby if he's ever killed someone. Yeah. Jacoby goes, have, have you? And then he's like, my father has. And, you know, Major Briggs gets kind of, not defensive because he's so mild-mannered, but he just sort of, like, explains himself. He's like, it was a war. That was different. Yeah. Bobby is maybe the only actor that gets any kind of real direction for parts where he doesn't have dialogue. Because, like, this time he was, like, he was just adjust. he was playing with his zipper the entire time. And I've seen the, I don't know if maybe the actor is doing this himself, but I've seen him do sort of small little gestures and movements when he's not actively talking or whatever that a lot of other characters on Twin Peaks noticeably don't do. Bobby, 10 out of 10. You got a lot of landscape shots after that. More than usual, I'll say. Many birds. Many, yeah, a lot of birds. And we sort of, we move into the boys arriving at a cabin. Doc Hayward, Still in tow. Still there. Still not clear why. They don't even seem to know why, because they keep telling him to, like, hey, you want, might want to hang back. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, like, an old man and not armed, except for his walking stick, I guess. You never know. He could do the, um, whatever the guy from uh, Rogue One is with the staff. It's Donnie Yen, but I don't know what his character's name is. No, no um, Doc Hayward karate, sadly. Uh, but it's not also would be great <laughs> also would be great yeah why don't we, why don't we have uh, yeah. a doc hayward spinoff so you don't have this in the notes but i do want to talk about it because we did bring it up while we were watching hit me is it problematic for hawk to be a tracker oh yeah i don't know yeah as someone who's uh 132nd blackfoot indian i don't know if i uh yeah i don't know if i have the necessary blood to talk about this issue I don't know, you know, I think they they intentionally portray Hawk as someone who seems to be in touch with kind of a first people's, like, traditional sort of tribal mindset of, like, the spirits, and he seems to be aware of the, the history of the land of Twin Peaks. So this is like a seven-layer a seven cake. Yeah, is, is that characterization itself uh, racist? Or, layer two, is that characterization, if it's intentional and... I mean, obviously it's intentional, but, like, is that intentional character choice, like, better than the alternative of, like, just kind of whitewashing the Native American character and not having him have any connection to his heritage or history? Layer three is, like, they do have a Native American actor playing this character, so does that make it less of a problematic... Like, how does Michael Horse feel about this? (laughs) And then, like, layer... I don't remember which one I'm on. Four, five, like, it was the 90s. It's not like there, if this was a problematic role, it's not like there were probably a lot of unproblematic roles out there for him to take instead. Yeah. Someone please weigh in on I'm this. I'm going to say phone a friend. I'm, I'm David Lynch. I, I don't, Albert, I don't see race. I only see the transcendental threads of reality that connect every being in the great etherverse that is Twin Peaks. Mm. That interview is very hard to get, by the way. I can see, like, David Lynch 
in a, in a mostly respectful way, drawing inspiration from other cultures. I mean, it's on the cer- other hand, certainly in this show, it's there's a ton of yeah, it's the whole Black yeah. Lodge idea. I think yeah, and I I think that I think that there's a lot of places where he does that well, and he does do that respectively, and with a lot of the you know, a lot of the you know, like Tibetan Buddhist stuff seems it's not exploitative. Not like a, on the other hand. We have talked on previous episodes about the problematic nature of Johnny's character, so... David Lynch is far from a perfect human, but there's an eighth layer to this, which is, yeah, which is, are we racist for assuming that he is a tracker because he's Native American and not because, like me, he has the tracking merit badge? Maybe Hawk is just an Eagle Scout. I mean, that that seems probably very likely. That Hawk is an Eagle Scout? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, well, David um, Lynch is, so. Well, there you go. Coop is certainly an Eagle Scout, right? So the cabin that they arrive at is not Jacques Renault's cabin. The rape murder cabin. It's not the rape murder cabin, it's the log cabin. <laughs> well, that didn't work. But it's the log lady's cabin, Margaret Lanterman. I love her so much. She invites them in for tea. She says a bunch of uh, weird Twin Peaksy stuff. We get a mention of the owls. We got a couple mentions of the owls. And uh, then she asked Coop that to, to ask the log what it saw that night. And I love that he looks skeptical about this. Like, he looks at Harry like, should I, should I ask the log? And Harry's like, I've got to ask the log, man. <laughs> yeah, I, but I know. I just, I like that this is Coop's one hang-up. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else he's, like, totally fine with. But he's not going to be okay talking to that log. <laughs> Yeah, my dream sleuthing so far has been going really well. But this log, I don't know if he's a valuable contact. So the log speaking through uh, Margaret gives what seems like a pretty accurate account so far that lines up with uh, their findings about sort of the order of events, except that it introduces a mysterious third man, uh, mm-hmm. neither Leo nor Jacques. They, uh, they leave, I guess, and they show up at the right cabin, uh, they're guided by music. Uh, yeah. And this is where it does start to out. get really, like, I really love this, like, creepy, ominous. Mm. And it's all in broad daylight, too. Which which almost makes it more unnerving. Agreed. A lot of crows, like, got close-ups of crows blinking. Crows are um, ravens. I think they're the crows, right? Yeah. There's that scene of the, like, that shot of, like, all four of them kind of in profile. <laughs> That's I love that shot. It's so funny. It looks like the uh, like a '70s album cover. Yes. Of like a Rolling Stones greatest hits. Doc Hayward literally sits this one out. He just sits down on the side of the trail and doesn't go in with them. Which like he's still he's also still pretty close. So I feel like they should have told him like this seems like a a dangerous situation that they've let him get fairly close to, and I'm still not sure why he's there. Well, in like if this was like Scooby Doo, then the perp would like run out of the cabin and he would he would like trip hit him with the hit him with stick. the no he'd, he'd yeah. hit him with the stick yeah yeah um but now they burst into the cabin and they find a record player playing the music uh, and it's it's that very airy twin peaks like julie cruz kind of music and they find waddle the bird the minor bird and they find the rest of the chipped poker chip uh, that leads to one-eyed jacks Big breakthroughs in the case. Uh, yeah, Pete and Catherine show up at a uh, event in the Great Northern, uh, the Timber Room, I think it's called. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an event for the Ghostwood Estates, I guess. Yeah, they're having like a reception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Briggs and Leland are also there. Although, like, everybody else who shows up is like on the guest list, right? They like check in, and Leland just kind of walks in, and there's a very noticeable right. see- scene where he doesn't give his name to the person because he wouldn't be on the guest list. Pete says to go easy on the sauce, and in response, Catherine downs a glass of champagne and grabs another and goes uh, goes over to pour it on Ben's shoe. Yeah, well, so I think she must have had many... I think the implication must be that she has had many glasses of champagne in between these two. Okay. Because she seems sort of tipsy. You thought so. I thought she just seems... Angry? Yeah, pissed off. I don't know. I, I couldn't tell. So she, yeah, so she goes over and dumps it on um, Ben's shoe. She, like... Pulls him away to his office, or he says mm-hmm. that he's gonna he'll meet her in his office in two yeah. minutes. Um, Audrey then, Audrey follows along to eavesdrop. Yeah, and that that how many secret holes in the walls are there? Cause she it's a different is it the same one or is she this a different one from where she was um, eavesdropping on her parents? I think it's a different one. But that scene wasn't in Ben's office, and this one is. So I guess Audrey yeah. just has a bunch of like secret hiding places, which is fine. But so Catherine um, brings up the, the poker chip, which I can't remember. I know I talked about this in the last episode. I may have cut it out in editing, and maybe I left it in. So sorry if I did, and this is repetitive. But when she finds the poker chip that falls out of Ben's pocket when they're at the Timber Falls Motel, I mentioned last time that like she looks at it kind of suspiciously, and I thought that this was just that I was reading too far into it. But no, she actually was looking at it suspiciously, and she actually is pissed that, like, he was at One-Eyed Jacks. Yeah, you went, you went and got whores without me? I mean, I assume that's why she knows what it means. What? She probably frequents... That she's frequented One-Eyed Jacks herself. I mean, and she's annoyed, because uh, she thought he would be with women of... Uh, a certain experience. The experience, she said. She slaps him a lot, because he tries to lie about it she slaps him three times and apparently he finds that a turn on because then they just start going at it yeah uh they let slip some of the details about burning down the mill uh to audrey i like audrey's reaction here because she is like she puts the the little block back and stops spying on them and she just kind of starts laughing right it's it's very clearly kind of like a a hysterical laughter of, like, she doesn't mm-hmm. know how else to process this. Yeah. Um, because we then cut to Jerry, or Yeri, as the uh, Icelanders uh, call him. And he's, he gives an embarrassing speech about, I guess, the Ghostwood Estates, where he makes, like, a... It's like an Eich ein Berliners joke, but it's like, Ich sun Icelander. We're and all he Icelanders. Does, he does say Icelander, so I guess it is Icelander. Oh, yeah, you're right. But then in the middle of it, for some reason, uh, Pennsylvania 65,000, is that what it's called? Yeah. Oh, you did so good. Uh, hey. I, I, it comes back on. I'm not sure why, but it triggers Leland's sad dance, and he starts, starts sad dancing in the middle of everyone. But Catherine, at the behest of Ben, goes and dances with him, and they sort of invent a new dance move, and then everyone in the room thinks that that's what's going on now so they all start dancing along and doing that like this sort of head shaking hands dance move and it's just like this big farce 
before we cut to Audrey like crying as she watches from behind a pillar. And uh, it's a cool scene. I really like this because we finally see Audrey kind of being a real a real person, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, all of these reactions that she's had to these various things, right? I mean, we talked about this too in earlier episodes where she seems to be kind of acting out in response to Laura's death when she's spying on her parents. And Johnny, it's very much like she's distant and removed from this family drama that's happening. Same thing with, with this scene with Ben and Catherine where she, you know, we, we do start to see she kind of doesn't quite know how to respond to it, so she responds by laughing at it, um, which also feels very much like a defense mechanism. And then, like, finally, finally, and she's actually, like, finally kind of breaking down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it juxtaposed against, yeah, the farce of everyone doing this sort of made-up dance. Because, yeah, because in every other scene where Audrey and Ben Horn, she's kind of been, obviously, in, like, a, a melodramatic high school student way she's kind of been just as i don't know both being so over dramatic and and here there's a contrast rather than mm. them kind of being shown as similar we see josie sitting mysteriously and smoking a cigarette in one of those cigarette holder things it's a cool well-lit shot yeah. yeah very mysterious very ominous uh maddie calls donna late at night with news that she found a tape that laura hid uh, and they should meet up with a tape player to, to play it. Ben meets with Josie. Turns out Josie was sitting in Ben's office, and Josie has found the second ledger at the direction of Ben, and it it seems like they are plotting together now. Twist. Yeah, so because in the last episode, I think, at the Timber Falls Motel, Catherine mentioned to Ben where she had hid the ledger. Mm. So Ben then must have told Josie. I forgot this happened, but I look forward to it not paying off. I wish they tied together Ben Horn's scheming cohesively, but instead he just kind of like fades into the background and all of the schemes that he was sort of shown to have a hand in like sort of spin out independently. And it's like, no, this wasn't, these weren't the interesting parts. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool, uh, it's a cool twist. Yeah. I, I don't think anything comes of it, but yeah, that's Execute it well in season two, but did they execute anything well in season two? I'm going to put a coin in the jar for season two. The weird jar, and now the season two jar. Anytime we complain about season two. Um, for listeners, he got the whole weird jar thing set up so that he could make this joke, and then I was we very haven't... careful. I was very careful no. not to say weird. So Yeah, I actually got he's... coins in a, a glass this time for mm-hmm. optimal Foley effects. And yeah. And we've I been really good about it, though. Didn't let him have this bit, so. Uh, Leo arrives home with gas cans, which I guess are going to be used to burn the mill. But he's attacked by Hank, basically for sort of running other drugs on the side. You were supposed to watch the store, says Hank. Not open, what What does he say? Watch the store, not open your own something shop like or that. something. Close I like enough. that line. Yeah. That's In these three seconds, that is the only time I find Hank a remotely interesting character. Well, I also like that they're establishing Hank as being above Leo, even in like terms of his position in the crime syndicate's not the right word but yeah neither is family but whatever and also just like he can intimidate leo he can tell leo that he's gonna like beat the shit out and he can yeah Um, and he does so now leo's sort of got a an adversary yeah and it makes sense because like you look at leo and you're like yeah i mean this guy is you know running drugs across the border and he can off one of the renault brothers but like he's not 
He's no mastermind, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, and Hank Hank does, for all of the reasons that I don't really care about Hank's character, Hank does at least come off a little bit more capable, I guess. I'll say, I actually sort of like, I, I, I like the contrast they have of, like, cold, violent Hank, who, yeah, could beat up Leo Johnson and, like, oh, hey, let me start by washing the dishes, Norma. I'm going to earn back your trust. It was just manslaughter, Hank. But Leo is pissed off by this uh, and storms into the house and shoves Shelly down, and she pulls out her... We didn't... Sorry, we didn't talk about this. I just want to get it in real quick. But in that scene where Shelly and Norma walk into the diner, um, Hank does make some comment about, like... like yeah, is that Hank's girlfriend? Leo's Hank's girlfriend. Is that Leo's girlfriend? Leo's girlfriend. And Norma says, it's wife now, and... I don't know, like, Hank makes kind of a kind of a joke in it. A, kind of a, like, bro-y joke about, like, Leo's girlfriend, wife, whatever. You know, it's, like, that kind of tone. Um, which was, I don't know, that's interesting because it, it, like, it connects Norma and Hank and Shelly and Leo beyond just, like, Shelly working mm-hmm. for Norma. Like, it kind of sets yeah. up that they were were committing crimes together. But also, like, that, that it comes off to their wives that they're like friends yeah he says that he was always a um impulsive one yeah and then uh, he says something about like not much not much meat on her or something about shelly i guess she's skinny anyway go on sorry back to back to leo and shelly oh no uh leo shoves shoves shelly uh, who despite i guess not having a lot of meat on her uh pulls out a gun the gun and uh shoots him well she fires she shoots the gun and we cut away but we hear leo grunting in pain yeah um and then cooper uh still still being beset by the noise of the icelanders walks down the hall of the great northern to his room uh to find the door ajar so he like pulls out his gun and is like very he's on alert very fbi about it but who who should it be lurking in the dark corners of his room but audrey naked in his sheets and begging him not to make her leave. Cut to credits. That's an interesting, like, kind of conclusion to Audrey's arc in this episode because it sort of moves back into her doing this kind of, like, impulsive, bad behavior kind of stuff as a response to... But she also is, like, very clearly, like, she's crying in this scene. She is still very vulnerable, so I think it kind of encapsulates both sides of her character in a, in a way that's interesting and i forgot that it cut to credits there i thought that this little plot line got resolved in within the episode but both the leo thing and the audrey thing must have been interesting cliffhangers when this came out two back-to-back cliffhangers oh you mean they're back-to-back in the episode i thought you meant yeah. that the last episode also ended in a, on a cliffhanger and I couldn't yeah it did who killed laura palmer the cliffhanger of every episode <laughs> Anyway, wrap up. <laughs> that's our show, folks. It's all over now. That's My it. My co-host has left the building. Uh, wrap up. It's a fine episode. I actually, I really like this episode. I think it. We've been talking, you know, with each episode, kind of which ones have been more, um, like sort of satiric in tone, and which ones have been more, um, sort of like procedural mystery-ish, and like which ones have been very like plot-driven or whatever. Um, and I think this one balances some of that, like, really well, mm-hmm. and I think it, it juxtaposes it well with, like... Yeah, and I think this episode, because uh, this is the sixth episode, 
uh, and we are rapidly approaching the season uh, finale. So this ramps it up a little bit. It's hard to tell because, especially if I guess you're only consuming through this podcast, we don't really care about the whole mill storyline. But that is what this is all building to, and yeah. this episode especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the next, the next one, even more so, I think the next one also ends on a, a mill-related cliffhanger. Yeah, they're obviously sort of trying to pull the threads together now. Uh, there's good, legitimate breakthroughs in the case. You are starting to actually get a sense of what's going on mm-hmm. Yeah, with the crime, and things are taking shape beyond just Coop seeing stuff in dreams. You know, minus the log lady, this was... Uh, a very normalish episode, I'd say. Yeah, and I think the log lady. I think the log lady was a good way to bring in that surreal Twin Peaksiness because I think mm. if it had been, if we'd gotten more of it from Coop, it would have been too much. It would have been like, okay, Coop, we get it. But he, yeah. you know, he has a couple of kind of throwaway lines, but most of it comes from comes from Twin Peaks, and also comes from like this resident of Twin Peaks who everybody sort of knows about and you know like um, you know you get Hawk and and Truman talking to her a little bit and so it's sort of she's a good way of reinforcing that like this weirdness is something that is inherent to Twin Peaks and is like emanating from Twin Peaks and is emanating from the residents of Twin Peaks and the place Um, and I think that the scene in the woods does that too where where they're approaching the cabin and the the cabin and the setting is very ominous because otherwise I think if like I said, if it was we got more like Tibetan stuff from Coop, it'd be like weird FBI man is like bringing this mysticalness mm. into it. But this really reinforces it as something that is inherent to Twin Peaks. Was it a stereotype that like Scandinavian countries had a lot of land investors because it was the Norwegians and then it's the Icelanders that are uh, in this Ghostwood Estates? I don't know if this is intentionally supposed to be supposed to be incongruous with reality or what were the scandinavian stock markets like in the 90s maybe they were really good they're probably still really good <laughs> what what with their socialized medicine and stuff they do make a socialism joke about in the episode too what do you get when you cross like a a, a norwegian with a swede a socialist who wants to be king yeah because norway still has still had a monarchy does norway <laughs> this is going to be our closing note of the episode that sounds does good does norway Still have a king. Yes, King Harold V. All right, Nor- Norway yeah. still has a king, so that's our episode, folks. All hail the Norwegian king. All hail King Harold V. Follow us on Twitter at Northern Live Pod, and we will see you next week. As always, drink, drink that coffee. Okay, bye. I'm I'm putting this podcast out of its misery.